0: No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A R C A com.
1: It goes back to those same principles of really 21st century education centers around a student centered educational experience, right? Where you put the students' needs first in terms of how they learn. Are they experience based? Is it hands on? Are they? they learn best by reading by themselves. I mean, and these different spaces throughout the school provide different places for different modes of learning. We see them taking advantage of it. So it's, that's been hugely
0: gratifying. This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT, I am your host, Cherise Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Welcome to Detailed. The voice you heard in our intro is my guest and very good friend, Cam Featherston-Ha, Senior Associate at Truex Collins Architecture and Interior Design in Burlington, Vermont. Beautiful Burlington, Vermont. Cam is a licensed architect in Vermont and holds a Bachelor of Architecture from Norwich University. Cam also currently serves as the board chair on the National Board of Directors of CSI. Now that's the Construction Specifications Institute, not the Crime Scene Investigators. On a side note, remind me sometime to tell you my story about pretending to be a Crime Scene Investigator to an Uber driver. Cam is also a founder of the Emerging Professionals Network of the Vermont Chapter of AIA. As a senior associate and leader of the K-12 Education Studio at Truex Collins. Cam is well-versed in the educational pedagogy of 21st century learning and adept at guiding his clients through the challenges and opportunities of the design and construction process. Cam also has extensive knowledge of sustainable design, building science, and building practices. In his spare time, Cam is a classically trained pipe organist at St. Mary's Episcopal Church in Northfield, Vermont. Now, how many people can say that? Cam lives in central Vermont with his lovely wife, Stephanie, who I've met and I adore, his sons, Arthur and William, two cats named Burnham and Picard, and a mini Aussie blue heeler named Mabel. The project we're going to chat about today is the Winooski Schools Complex for the Winooski School District. But before we get started, don't forget to take a look at the project photos and drawings as you listen along. You can click the link in our show notes or visit www.rcat.com podcast. In May 2019, the residents of Winooski, Vermont, by a narrow margin, approved a bond of $57.8 million to expand and revitalize the Winooski Schools Complex. The existing building complex, was a 140,000 square foot facility that was originally built in 1957 and received multiple additions until 2000 to support 650 students. With the student population expected to increase an additional 10% in the next two decades, expansion and an overhaul of its infrastructure were desperately needed. Winooski is the smallest geographic school district in Vermont. It is unique in that it supports over 850 students from pre-K through the 12th grades, all under one roof. For many reasons, it is a unique and very special place for learning.
1: You know, this is a really interesting school district in Vermont. It's Vermont's only majority-minority school district. About 60% of the students are non-white, and that's unique in Vermont literally, it's the only one. And the other thing is that Winooski is a city, it's, a, it's one square mile, it's a suburb of Burlington, which is the largest city in Vermont. Winooski was a refugee resettlement area for the federal government for, for decades, going back to the conflicts in Bosnia, Herzegovina, during the Clinton years. And there have been refugees moving into Winooski from all corners of the world, from war-torn countries in Eastern Europe, Africa, Asia, the Congo, Nepal, all of these incredibly rich cultures moved into Winooski. And what's really interesting about it is Winooski is now this like cultural haven in Vermont where, you know, if you really want the best Vietnamese food, you go to Winooski. If you, you know, if you want the best Nepalese dumplings, you know, you, you go to Winooski. Sometimes these families, they start to branch out, and they move to other parts of the state, but Winooski tends to be this cultural mecca, which is great. That means that the school, though, had a lot of particular needs, you know, and it's generally organized into three schools, an elementary school, a middle school, and a high school. All three of them also have, as part of the school, what's called a newcomer academy, which is for English learners. About, I think, 37% or close to 40% of the student population is enrolled in English as a learned language. So it's definitely not your typical school district in Vermont, and it presented a lot of cool opportunities and challenges.
0: Truex Collins led an inclusive planning process with a wide variety of stakeholders. The resulting design would emerge to reflect the community and the district's pedagogy.
1: We started this project working with the owners or the administration, I guess the owners or the school board. And the administration helped us plan a series of workshops and they were community workshops and they included members of the community, members of the school board, and crucially people from every department in the school, you know, PE teachers, science teachers, special educators, speech language pathologists, on and on. And one of the groups that was included was, they're called community liaisons They're also sometimes referred to as translators. What happens is when a refugee family moves into a community, I think this happens in other places, but the pattern in Winooski is that family moves into Winooski. They have kids, kids go to school, the kids learn English, it takes a few months. They get into the Newcomer Academy and a couple months later, they graduate from the Newcomer Academy, they're into the regular classes and they're speaking English and the parents never learn English, or they learn English very slowly, or they only learn very limited English. And so the parents will, for years, still need the service of, of translating from the school. So having those folks involved in particular, along with community members and everybody from around the school, meant that we got a, a kind of a extra special cross-section of the school's needs, because they demonstrated so many of the inherent conflicts that come from having these very diverse populations, as simple, something as simple as a, I believe the Congolese interpreter, he mentioned that they were all working in one small office together. All these interpreters, he mentioned how you know sometimes people will come in and people from his culture, when they need to get attention, they sometimes they will they'll puff up. And they'll get louder because they're trying to make sure that they get the attention that they need to solve their problem. And the Chinese interpreter was this very petite woman and she said, It's the exact opposite. she piped up, said it's exact opposite for me. When people from my culture are coming to get help, you know, especially if it's for something like special ed or speech and language, you know, people from that culture, they they don't want to share their family business. So they try to recede into the background a little bit or speak very softly. And so having these kind of competing cultural dynamics was an issue for them to resolve people's problems. That kind of exploration of where the friction happens in a school district with very, very diverse populations and diverse histories and cultures, that was really illuminating. And it helped point us towards What are the things that we can do as architects to help alleviate some of this? And those workshops, we used this diverse, broad experience from all these different people, different professions, different cultures and backgrounds to craft guiding principles, statements of this is what the school is looking for. And an example of this would be that every occupied space would have access to natural light either directly from a shared adjacent space. That's one. And that's a very simple rubric to execute when you finalize your design or when you're working on your design. That informs how you lay things out, where they go, what has access to what. Another one was that the Winooski School District should be a welcoming place for all. And it seems like a very simple statement, but you know when you have a half a dozen of these guiding principles and you write them down at the beginning of the project, it does a couple of things. But most importantly, it gives the ownership group or the decision-making team a place to go when the going gets tough, when you have to make decisions about cutting costs or cutting program or cutting access to services. What are the things that were most important to the entire community
0: as a group? I remember years and years ago, we were working on a school project and the architects in my firm wanted to, they just wanted to have meetings with all the teachers because architects are not educators. Architects are not in the trenches every day with these kids, with all different kinds of situations, different kind of home environments. We don't know what the challenges are that teachers face every day and ways that we can change our environment. And The district did not want us to have meetings with the teachers. The attitude was, they're just going to ask for a bunch of things that we don't want to give them, that we're not going to spend the money on. And that bothered me so much at that time. You know, having raised a bunch of kids myself, it really felt like a district that just didn't really care about what was actually happening on a day-to-day basis.
1: Yeah, we often ask teachers and staff and faculty, administrators, we ask them to kind of suspend their disbelief. And it's maybe a flaw, but an opportunity in that we don't have a way to fund these projects other than municipal referendum in Vermont. You know, the whole town has to vote and it's up or down, yes or no. And the truth is that because we're doing a lot of this pre-planning work, When there's no funding available and we're trying to really figure out how big the project is, it does give us an opportunity to say, hey, you know what? This is your time to dream. Reality is going to come hard and fast when we have to put numbers to all this. But if you don't ask for it now, what does Wayne Gretzky say? You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. And it's stressful for the administrators. I do acknowledge that because we ask them to go through that process and say, what would be best? What would be ideal? And then, okay, let's get real about it. What can we actually do? But I think it opens up some possibilities and it kind of helps set an attitude on the owner's side that, you know, we can do things, that great things are possible.
0: The resulting design would renovate the 140,000 square feet of existing space and add another 75,000 square feet of new program space. The project thoroughly modernizes and transforms the aging district facility into a modern 21st century school while providing for the unique needs of the school and its growing population.
1: The school itself is organized into you know, three schools, elementary, middle school, high school, but within those schools, they have teams. So the elementary school, it's, it's grade level based is fairly typical. At the middle school, I think they have three grades, but they're in two different teams. And that's because they have multi-grade teams in middle school. The high school is kind of one big team. One of the things about this school is that the high school has a lower population per grade than the elementary and middle schools. This is a, a community that is often transitional for folks. So they'll move there as young families. It's less expensive than Burlington. And then as the parents get older and earning more money, they tend to move out of Winooski. So but the team-based design came through and it became one of the guiding principles that the design of the school shall support team-based education. So what that means is that we started to look at what are the teams and how are they organized. And it's not just the student teams, but it's also the faculty and administration teams. You know, so we have the school is a is basically a lot of suites. And Probably the biggest thing was we have these pods, and you've probably seen these before. These are like clusters of classrooms, and they're usually around a center space where people can gather. In this case, we kind of expanded that pod concept, which we've, we've seen. It was kind of big in the 90s, actually. We expanded this to have rooms that could be converted, so they could be opened up with partitions into larger spaces, or they can be closed off, and these are very good, highly rated acoustic partitions. Acoustics was a huge concern for the population, particularly because uh, a lot of kids with special learning plans, a lot of kids needing special services, a lot of kids below the poverty line. There's just a lot of confidentiality issues. So these pods are convertible, but they also include a lot of small meeting rooms. And the small meeting rooms, there are a couple different sizes of them they're specifically for special services teams. So for instance, we have like a speech and language pathology team. They have an office suite that's in the middle of the school. And that's where those people's days begins and ends. You know, if you're a speech language pathologist, you bring your bag to your office, you put it down. But then when you meet with students, the old model was you go get the student, you walk them back to your office, you meet with them, you do your work, you bring them back to class. The new model is, You go to the pod, if the kid or student has to leave the classroom, they come out, they go into one of these small meeting rooms that's in the pod. And this does two things. One, it it saves time, it saves steps, and school's schedule to the minute. So that's in a big complex, it actually can save real instructional time. And the other thing that it does, though, is it keeps the team together. You know, that student doesn't leave the team space for their work. And same thing was true with kids who are who are needing special ed services, kids who need physical therapy, stuff like that, so that we can actually provide some of these services in the place where they are with the rest of the team and kind of minimize that time away from the team. I think it's been pretty successful so far because people enjoy the idea of having a space to do their work that's in the location where the kids already are. And it offered us some opportunity to do some other neat things like when you have these big clusters of classrooms, it's hard to get light into the middle, right? Daylight doesn't penetrate more than you know 20 feet or so into a building. So we're able to go to the kind of architectural vocabulary of mill buildings. Winooski is an old mill town. And we were able to go to the architectural vocabulary of mills and put sawtooth daylight monitors over these pods. Which is nice. It means that those gathering spaces that are in the middle of those clusters of classrooms have taller ceilings. They open to daylight. They're well lit. They're very comfortable spaces to be. They provide some relief uh, spatially from the classrooms. Which, I mean, you know, they have like nine foot ceilings, but it's still nice to move from a place with ceilings to a place with a very high ceiling. It's you feel good when you do that. So you know that kind of team based approach. And the idea that every team has its own gathering space, that was a huge organizing principle that we executed throughout the whole project.
0: I did some special ed advocacy for a couple people close to me when my kids were younger and when I was younger. And one of the things I love about what you just said is one of the things when kids have special needs, whatever they are, whether it's it's English as a second language or Speech therapy or needing to see the counselor or whatever it always stood out when a kid had to get up and leave to go somewhere else in the building. I think that it often makes children feel different, more different than they want to feel instead of you know just walking out to the living room so to speak, that general common area and doing your thing or staying kind of within your home. I would imagine in those cases it reduces that feeling of feeling like an other or feeling like you're different like when you have to go to the principal's office. We all noticed when somebody had to go to the principal's office. <laughs> yeah. You know, everybody <laughs> noticed when I had to go to the principal's oh, office. <laughs> same. It's so great that you
1: say that because it, it, you know, I have to say that part of the whole impetus for these organizations and these structures of how we design this building comes from a place of wanting to remove or reduce stigma associated with any kind of difference. And these team spaces, these gathering spaces in the pod, these little meeting rooms, they're they're for everybody. They're not just for kids with special needs. They're also for, if a teacher is running group activities in their class, for instance, they might group, you know, break up their group of 20 into five groups. They can say, okay, why don't you take meeting room one? Why don't you take meeting room two? One group go out into the gathering space and, you know, one group can stay in here. So, they can fill up the space with different uses and needs. And they're basically, you know, unscheduled small meeting rooms or small group instruction rooms. And it meant that we could put a, a small English as a learned language classroom. It's really kind of like a big office with a teaching station. We can put one of those in every pod as well. Their goal, and I think they've accomplished this now at the start of the project, their goal was to have one English as a learned language teacher for each team. Because there's still that transition from kind of the newcomer academy, I don't know any English, to I'm still learning English as a learned language, but I'm in the classroom with all the other students. So there was a lot of attention to that, kind of reducing the stigma. And it came through in other
0: areas of the design too. To meet the needs of this student body, the team researched and implemented trauma-informed principles. While being mindful of how attention to DEI issues could make a more welcoming school environment.
1: One of the things I really love about schools, probably my favorite part about being a school architect, is that you get to design so many different types of spaces. You know, there's a little bit of everything. You've got business offices, classrooms, you know, gymnasiums, fitness studios, yoga rooms, performing arts centers. Black box theaters, cafeterias, kitchens, cafes, like every project type in this school, including a full service health suite that actually has a dental office and a medical exam room. Again, because the population is you know needs these services in order to be ready to learn. You know that's where all of this comes from too, is a student readiness to learn. Probably the most consequential is the health suite. Actually, our congressional delegation, I think led by Bernie Sanders and Pat Leahy before he retired, secured, I think, a $600,000 earmark for the health services suite. You know, and this is because it's hard to learn with a toothache, right? Right. You got to get these kids at least to a point where they can tolerate being in the school before they have a hope of learning. But, you know, as part of this project, we did some pretty cool things, probably one of the most innovative ideas that we had was we had to upgrade their auditorium they had an auditorium that I think seated 225 kids. they also had this old cafetorium it was kind of a combination <laughs> gym <laughs> cafeteria
0: yeah while. it
1: was like a combination gym cafeteria you know it's got a crappy vinyl sports floor and they bring the tables out every day and then pack them away and we did a test fit. And we realized, oh, well, they want about 450 seats for their auditorium. We can fit just over 400 in this existing space that doesn't serve their needs. And we we had this idea to cut the first area out. You know, sometimes auditoriums have like two kind of seating areas. There'll be like a front of house and a, and a back of house. The part of the audience that's closer to the stage and the part of the audience that's further back from the stage. So we had this idea to that front portion of the audience, we would carve that down into the existing slab to create a recess. So we would go from level on the old gym floor down 30 inches to the front of the stage. And then the back part of the house would be stadium seating. So we could get the kind of pseudo parabolic bowl seating effect for sight lines. But the other thing that it did Was it made so that the stage was at the same level as everything else, so that you could wheel a grand piano from the music room onto the stage through double doors without going up an incline or without a lift? And we have a big, wide cross aisle that separates the front of the house from the back of the house. That's where the majority of the accessible seating is. So you know, people who are in wheelchairs they get you know prime seating right in the middle of the of the house. And people who are called up to stage who have physical disabilities or challenges, they don't have to navigate stairs. They don't have to navigate a lift. There's something dignifying about creating a space that everybody can use equally, where you don't have to have one particular type of vertical transit for just a single group of class of users. That was, in my mind, really successful because it kind of hit checked all those boxes. It got them the space they needed. It was a very dramatic upgrade of the, the mm-hmm. level of performance space they could have. It fits everyone they needed. It's a place that can be used with dignity by everybody. That was like a, a really successful thing that I, I would totally do that again if the opportunity came up. Also, as part of this project, we added a, a second full size gym. They have a lot, they have a strong basketball program, and they had hopes of maybe having AAU tournaments or something there. So they wanted to have two. Full-size gyms with real wood floors. We thought that was, you know, spot-on as far as meeting their program needs. There's always a conflict in schools, you know, and other school architects. I wonder if they'll f- have similar thoughts about this. But there's always this kind of scheduling conflict around the main spaces in a school. Who is using the gym when? When are the cafeteria seatings happening? Especially if those occur in a space that's also a gym how often is the auditorium used and by whom a lot of design we tend to move around those big spaces to try and find the best fit most easy access so those are some of the things we did we we also created a new cafeteria it used to be actually the business offices which was we thought pretty cool because it was a long skinny area a lot of times you know cafeterias in schools are these big squares and they're so uncomfortable. It's so uncomfortable to be in a huge room and be in the you feel like you're at a wedding or something, you know what I mean? It's much more comfortable. People tend to gravitate towards the edge of a room when they want to eat. So having this long, skinny cafeteria space with a lot of edge and a lot of windows meant that there was a lot of more comfortable seating. It was kind of a a scale. But you know, even though it's 300 kids at a time, the scale of the space was a little smaller, more intimate. One of the most probably successful spaces in the building was what we call the high school hub, right? So, I had mentioned how every team had a gathering space, and the high school is really like one team. You know, it's it's a departmental model with the science and the math and history department and all those things. A teacher in the high school might teach every grade level at different times. And the high school hub, we decided that high school was going to be in this old portion, of the oldest portion of the building, built in 1957. And it's kind of this, uh, at the time, was a wonderful modernist building. The state architectural historian likes to call it the Vermont International Style. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> By architect Julian Goodrich, he was a modernist at heart. He did a lot of things with brick and steel. And the whole building has this cool exoskeleton. It's But in Vermont, that's kind of a challenge, right? To put the building structure on the outside. Anyway, it's this two-story building built in the 50s. You know, it's a workhorse, but it's old school with the ribbon windows and everything. Then we said, you know, what would be really cool is if we actually took a classroom out of this building and made it a double height space. And then we can get natural light down into the middle of the first floor corridor. We can have this wonderful double height gathering space. And we put in it uh, a learning stair, which is something that some listeners may be familiar with or may have seen before. It's essentially looks like, it might look like gigantic steps that are about the right height to seat on. And usually on one side or the other or both, there are actual person-sized stairs so you can walk up to the different levels. We put a stair like that. In this space, but we actually turned it 90 degrees, so it looks a little bit like a ziggurat. We called it the ziggurat the whole time we were designing it, but it was so great. You know, the first day we showed up, and that space had been open to the school. Our project architect showed up and was taken. He was doing construction administration at the time. He showed up, and there were kids just sitting there naturally, like almost exactly like we had shown in all the renderings. And it was one. Of, it was one of these moments where, when you when you show up, and the people are using the space the way you intended, it just it warms your heart as a as an architect. And that space continues to be super popular because it goes back to those same principles of really twenty first century education centers around a student centered educational experience, right? Where you put the students' needs first in terms of how they learn. Are they experience based? Is it hands-on? Are they they learn best by reading by themselves. I mean, and these different spaces throughout the school provide different places for different modes of learning. We see them taking advantage of it. So it's that's been hugely gratifying.
0: As I mentioned before, the Winooski Schools Complex was originally built in nineteen fifty seven and received multiple editions until two thousand. This condition proved to be one of the biggest challenges that Truex Colons could encounter.
1: The original building in 57 was built as a gym and a two-story classroom wing. Very simple. The second building that was built on this site was built as a separate building about you know 400 feet to the south. And that was built in 64. In 69, they added on to that. It was originally the middle school. And I think in 76, they added on to the high school portion a little bit they put a little vocational area garage bay and a couple of spaces back there and for 20 years or so the site had two separate buildings in 1991 another architect actually did a design that stitched together the two separate buildings into one complex and it ended up looking a little bit like a like a z in plan you know these two long wings connected by this kind of amalgamation in the middle So when we show up, we end up with a building that has basically five major components built in five different eras. And our design kind of filled in, it was like an infill project in some ways. We had, you know, these long wings and we basically said, let's build another wing opposite that and create courtyards. So we have two big, long, elongated donuts in plan and they kind of... Book ended the middle portion of the building so that the whole thing is much more squarish. It was a very, very difficult technically to actually get these new buildings to line up and marry up to the original building because you know one thing we hadn't really considered was, okay, what if these buildings are not actually parallel <laughs> right <laughs> It was originally built as two separate buildings right that was very very challenging, and to say nothing of one of our goals was to bring this entire complex up to current Vermont Energy Code standards. And we were essentially upgrading five different buildings, You know, five different construction techniques, five different sets of building systems, different structural systems, and they all spanned over a period of construction of 35 years. And trying to execute that level of upgrade to essentially six separate designs and keep it all coordinated and have things actually end up and land where you want them to is very, very difficult. How do you actually get the spaces to be where they want to be relative to the other spaces? An example is the community liaisons. They were working in a small office that was down at the end of a hallway, essentially, as far into the old building as you could get. And you have to imagine what it's like for a person who doesn't speak the language, who's coming to the schools, trying to find these people who can help them talk to the rest of the school. And they're trying to be directed to literally as far away in the building as you can, as many turns and as many hallways as are possible to be directed down. We found that this is true of many schools where as programs are developed and change over time, people get put wherever there's room. So. You know, closets get turned into offices, offices get turned into meeting rooms. It's just a hodgepodge. So to make this project work, we came up with the idea of having this be like a town center, right? So imagine the school is the community and we have to pull all of these important community functions into the middle of the building and make that like a mini town center. So everything that pertains to everybody is in the middle of the building at the main entry. And then the rest of the building is basically neighborhoods. And we ended up using these kind of glass connectors to bridge areas of the design that we had where there was no building. They create these wonderful moments of you have a courtyard on one side and a view to the playing fields on the other. or. Just the experience of saying, oh, I'm leaving this building, I'm passing through this threshold, I'm going through this glass connector, and I'm arriving in this other building, you know, from the high school to the middle school, for instance. Even though it was very challenging to make that work and have it lay out properly, it ended up being a pretty successful experience in my mind, but it was super difficult to get these little glass connectors to land perfectly in exactly the bay that you want them to because... Remember, I said the original high school has this exoskeleton, Right. so you can't just touch it wherever you want to. You have to be very careful about how you put another building, how you touch it, because if you want the movement joints to, to disappear, for instance, or you want to respect the rigor of that existing, very visible exoskeleton, getting those things, the contractor was worked miracles in my mind. But they also had to have a surveyor there the whole time. I mean, we were working really hard to make sure that those layouts actually landed where they were supposed to and and that we didn't destroy some, you know, wheelchair clearance or floor area that was clear floor area that was needed or, you know, didn't have room for a handrail run out. I mean, those are the little details that are so easy to miss.
0: Expanding on the idea of being mindful about the diverse needs and considerations for occupants, acoustics, and views were other areas that called for attention and consideration.
1: The school district has had, you know, for instance, kids in school who not that long ago were in war torn areas and some of them were literally child soldiers. And many of them come from war-torn areas of the globe, and something as simple as you know a stack of textbooks being dropped can be triggering for these students and completely take them out of a space where they're able to learn. And you know there are a lot of things like relate to that the sort of notion of being triggered into uh, memories of war. Another example was, and I never would have thought of this. You know we often have requirements for fencing and screening a job site. The nature of school work is that it's always phased construction if the school is not being placed because you can't, it takes longer than a summer, <laughs> you know? You need the school, right? You need the school, right. So you always are cordoning off portions of the school, moving kids around, and there's like, it's like the project within the project. And we never thought ahead of time that we should maybe screen those areas that are being worked on but there were some reports that we got of students who were were triggered by seeing the site of their parts of their school under construction there's one area where you know the windows had been taken out and it was very dirty and messy and there was plastic on some windows but not others and it, the plastic was torn and it's blown in the breeze and it looked for all intents and purposes like a building that had been bombed out and You know, that's like a a thing we we didn't even consider until we heard about it on the back end. But it made us think, oh, you know what? Actually, just the idea that this is distracting to students in any way is something that means, well, maybe we should ask contractors to screen the job within the job so that when students are transiting from one part of the school to the other, they're not, you know, distracted or drawn in or, or disturbed in some way by what they see. But yeah, I mean, the acoustics thing was... The whole school had acoustic needs in terms of either isolating people for for confidential conversations or trying to deaden the noise so that it wasn't disruptive. This school happens to be directly under the flight path from Burlington International Airport, where they, under much controversy several years ago, relocated a squadron of F-35 fighters, which are, you know, we had an acoustician visit the site and he measured the volume of those F-35s at over a hundred decibels at the ground, you know, so in terms of trying to provide an environment where students can be ready to learn and not distracted or not disturbed
0: or triggered in some way was a big challenge. A ready-to-learn environment at its heart is a drive to create a positive learning environment for all our students. Key areas of this approach are safety, engagement, connectedness, and support. Through design, we can enact various strategies to support these goals, including through something as simple yet powerful as material selection. One thing, probably
1: the biggest thing, and I think this is true for every school, It became very apparent in this school because of the population served, but we really realized that we have to deinstitutionalize these spaces. And so other folks are probably already doing this, although it may be because there may not be enough masons in their area, for instance. That's also a challenge here. But we like to use impact-resistant drywall for the wall construction, particularly corridors and sometimes classrooms, and you do it up to like eight feet or something like that. And it feels so different to the occupants to be in a building with drywall walls, with gypsum wallboard instead of CMU. It's pretty traditional that you see CMU in these schools, but it just feels like a prison. And I understand why. You know, when we ask reps what's the hardest environment, your materials are in, they always say public schools. That was a key thing that the occupants, particularly the teachers, are like, thank you so much. Another one is a material from a manufacturer named Forbo. You're probably familiar. Others are probably familiar. And I don't know how innovative this is at this point. We've been doing it for a few years now, but they have a material called Flowtex, which we're looking for competitors because it's like a miracle material for schools. It's a flocked, resilient flooring, and we can't seem to stain it. I mean, the thing that really gets the administrators and teachers is we'll bring a sample of it in with a Sharpie and an alcohol wipe, and I'll write their name in Sharpie, and then take an alcohol wipe and clean it off. It's soft. It makes it so that people's Footfalls are quieter in corridors, which is a huge acoustic trigger for some people. And, and it holds up very well. We've had it in several schools now for, for I think we put it in the Williston Central School well, five or six years ago. It still looks like the day it was put in. A word of, word of warning, though, the yellow color is difficult to keep clean in schools. So it's beautiful, and I love it. And I love that we did it, but the maintenance people wish that we hadn't.
0: I mentioned security as a key area of a ready-to-learn environment. Now, it is one of the primary points of discussion and contention for school design today. The Winooski Schools Complex was no different, and Truex Cullens had a well-informed and balanced approach to their design.
1: In this project, we hired a nationally known a security consultant to work with us, to work with the school. Many security issues in schools are really operational as opposed to bricks and mortar and it's some of its behaviors, leaving doors open, using those little wood blocks that are illegal. We did a couple of things. I'll I'll walk through a couple of strategies. Number one is we have a single entry point for everybody. It's got what's called a, we call it a person trap. And it's basically a a big vestibule where the inner set of doors is always locked. And so people can get in the building, but they can't get past that first set of doors. And they get credentialed before they can enter the building. In the old arrangement, you know, you, you get buzzed in and then you're in the building. And if you have bad intentions, you're off and running. So that's number one. We did harden that vestibule area a bit. Not all the glass is bullet resistant, but we do have a bullet resistant transaction window for the person who's there just because they needed that to, to feel comfort. They needed that sense of security. The security consultant, Margolis Healy was the consultant. They advised that as far as school shootings go, this still is a statistically, although it's very top of mind and obviously gets a lot of publicity, and don't get me wrong, one school shooting is one too many, and the number the number in this country is appalling. But they also cautioned that statistically, this is a very rare event in schools and far more issues with school security and safety come from, for instance, non-custodial
0: parents. Not surprised there. Yep.
1: And <laughs> they also cautioned against creating a kind of police state, going back to the, the notion that this school is the only majority minority school in Vermont one kind of key observation they had was that if your goal is to disrupt student readiness to learn one good way to do that would be to make sure that young people of color feel like they're being scrutinized by you know a million cameras and the behaviors are not necessarily affected by the placement of cameras because kids are not stupid they can see the cameras they go to where there are no cameras it was an eye opening moment for us to have a security consultant come in and say, yeah, we understand that there are issues with school shootings, but there are other more pressing, more pertinent, and probably much higher likelihood issues you should contend first. And also to have them say, yeah, you know, cameras are going to help you find perpetrators of vandalism, but they're really not going to do much else in terms of preventing behaviors. They'll prevent the behavior in front of the camera. And other little things, too, like having a uniformed police officer at the entry. That's going to be disconcerting for some folks. Having a police cruiser parked in front of the front entry every morning when students arrive, that's going to be disconcerting for some folks. It's interesting because this project faced a couple of challenges that coincided, right? One of them was obviously the construction started. I mean, I literally, we delivered our first bid set on March 16th of 2020, and I think Governor Scott had closed the state down for COVID on March 13th, you know, and I just I worked through the weekend and put the set out, and I was like, okay, I guess I work from home now. That was one major challenge, but only a few months later, this particular school community was rocked by the murder of George Floyd. and contending with those issues simultaneously because it really created an upheaval in the student body. And there were meetings and a committee, they wanted to get rid of the SRO. There was a a whole host of and flurry of of potential changes that were floated and it calmed down and settled down and this community still does have an SRO. They work in the school and, and they're great people, but they're no longer uniformed. Their car is unmarked and it's not parked in front of the door. It's parked in the parking lot. Another detail related to this is we tend to use what's called, we use an office lock set. It's the kind with the little tiny thumb turn, right? You've got the office lock set with the push button and then you've got the one with the little thumb turn. You can push in and turn it and it stays unlocked. We use those on classrooms in combination with a mag hold open and the mag hold opens on every classroom door are tied to a button at the front desk. And if the person at the front desk perceives a threat, they can push the button and all the corridor doors in the school close and lock, and all of the classroom doors are released from their hold open, and they're intended to be kept in this locked position with the push turn in and turned. And that means that essentially the school is ready to be locked down and people don't have to go to the door, lock it with a key. You know, the old kind of classroom secure lock sets that have a keyhole on both sides, which I think was intended to prevent students from locking the teacher out. But in this case, the priority is to provide a safe space for the students to be. We also have connected classrooms. So every classroom in your typical double loaded corridors is connected by doorways. So students can get from one classroom to another without going through the corridor. And all the classrooms that are in pods have essentially escape windows. So that if there's a problem and a threat in the actual pod, they can get out of the classroom outdoors. That's kind of the bullet list, right? A single point of entry, control entry throughout the building at the classrooms so that if someone does get into the building, they can be stopped before getting into the classrooms. Be mindful of where and what you're recording. And in particular, this is not a design or architect thing, but for architects who are doing schoolwork, you might consider asking your owner to review their policies around recording. There's a lot of, that I was previously unaware of around the liabilities created by storing camera recordings of students you gotta think about how long are you storing it, who has access to view it. Like those policies need to be figured out. And that's something that the consultant was was very helpful with.
0: Right. Well, you don't want to, especially with young children, but any children, you don't want to create an environment of fear. The balance is so important because you may you may have razor wire, but is your child terrified to be there every day? You know, or do they they now have concerns that never cross their mind before because they see this when they walk in every day? That also interferes with learning and life and mental well being. And so I love what you guys did with the balance, that you found a way to address that. You found a way to be honest enough to say this is a while it is in the overall statistics rare. One is too many. This is a real concern that could happen anywhere. We'll address it. That would be a weight for me.
1: Yeah, there's a tendency to want to harden these things because – and it comes from a place of good intention, right? We want to protect the children at all costs. And I think personally as a practitioner, I would push back on the at all costs because I don't know what you lose. You know, An example of exactly what I'm talking about, the school says in a very general way, before we even start design, we want the school to be welcoming. Then we get down deep into the, we're we're in CDs and we're literally picking out the transaction window at the front door, the tip of the spear, so to speak, the focal point of all of this conjecture. And the person, I I don't know who it was, but someone suggested a bulletproof window with a deal tray and a speaker box. And I'm like, this is not welcoming. You know, We're not buying a pack of cigarettes on the Jersey Turnpike at 2 a.m. All right, this is a school. So what instead of that, instead of a deal tray and a speaker and you know, thick ballistic glass, how about a bullet-resistant sliding transaction window? That way, the window, when the person shows up, the window can be closed, the person can be secure, and they choose to open the window, share the same air that they breathe, share the same space and acoustic connection, but still be protected to me, that's an example of how the kind of guiding principles can be executed in a
0: detailed way that informs the design and makes it better. Construction brought about additional complexities. But if you recall the timing of this project, it began in June of 2020, right at the height of labor and material challenges that emerged from COVID-19. Well, I think I shared already that you know our first
1: bid package was put out March 16th, 2020. And we had another bid package in April that year, a third bid package in June, and the last bid package was the big one. It was all the interiors, mechanicals, plumbing. That was all in September. And the fourth bid package was significantly over budget,
0: you know, to the tune
1: of millions of dollars.
0: Not surprised at that particular phase of COVID and what was going on in our industry.
1: Exactly, exactly. And there was a
0: tremendous
1: amount of anxiety on the part of the construction team and procurement team around the availability of materials, the lead times of certain materials. We looked back and we found that two of the wings of the school had a ventilation system that was installed in late 2015. It was being replaced with a more efficient system as part of a holistic design, but the equipment was not very old and was still very serviceable. So we said, let's keep this ventilation system in these two wings it's still providing enough fresh air to meet code and it still works and the equipment's not old and that provided enough space for us to basically keep the entire building program to build all the spaces that they needed we did have to make some compromises on some materials here and there which is fine not a big deal we lost some thin brick in the performing arts center and it's a painted wall instead. It still looks beautiful. So there was some kind of things that shook out like that. Generally, though, the construction process, although it took longer than was planned, it did work out very well in this project. And this is something that I, we would do again. You know, They built all the new spaces first so that they could move kids into those spaces and free up some space to renovate. That's pretty standard, I would think, way of operating. What it did, it presented some interesting challenges in terms of egress during construction because, and it also created some very, you know, not the greatest situations for transit from one part of the campus to the other. Because when you add on to a building like this, you're adding on to the edge, right? Almost always. So now you can move people out of the middle into the edge, but if they have to get anywhere, they have to get from an edge to an edge.
0: I was just going to say, but how do you get from edge to edge?
1: Right. So, that was, you know, we had covered walkways. They're outdoors. We had you know cordoned off sections that were ostensibly inside a construction zone, but they're plasticed off and you know, are covered with plywood so you don't have things dropping on you. So, it was a very convoluted occupancy. That is something that I I think want to think more carefully about in the future because essentially the contractor takes on the responsibility of sequencing, scheduling, coordination, means and methods and all that stuff but i think we can set folks up for success if we think about you know i realized like we really needed a connector in the back of the project like we have all these connectors to get from one part of the building to the other if we had just had a connector in the back of the project so many challenges could have been avoided in terms of the occupancy during construction we also had our fair share of like, you know, one of the things they do. These old buildings—they're full of of hazardous materials, you know. And Vermont—we're systematically going through and testing every school for PCBs now. And there's always asbestos. There's, a, you know, there's usually flooring issues, window caulk, and we find increasingly in these older schools, we find areas where they use vermiculite.
0: Oh, okay. That's a, I haven't heard that one in a long time.
1: Yeah, it, 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 it oftentimes around the entryways. For whatever reason, they were using vermiculite in brick cavities. Maybe it's unique to this part of the country, but that's kind of the the most disruptive thing. You get a call one day and the contractor's like, I found asbestos. I'm not working in there now until you get it taken care of. And There's always this kind of uh, multiple contractors because the owner will have their abatement contractor working alongside the actual contractor. That kind of interaction is, is always, you'd have to drop everything and just deal with that.
0: During construction, the team made some great decisions like contracting a building envelope commissioning agent.
1: This particular envelope commissioning agent does a lot of work with theatrical fog. So they'll do first instance testing. We basically come up with a list of here are the all the different conditions that need to be tested. And it was a long list because of all the ex- existing different conditions in this building. But they go out and they schedule with the contractor times to go out. They cordon off a portion of the building, the plastic it all off, and they put a theatrical fog machine in it. And then they go outside and they watch. And they look for fog leaking through gaps in the construction. And then they come up with measures to try and address that. And it was super successful in this project. We ended up with a a total building blower door test of 0.152 CFM at 50 pascals, cubic feet per minute and 50 pascals of, of square foot of envelope. So that's, I think nowadays in Vermont, we actually have to test at CFM 75 for the new energy code, but it used to be CFM 50. And 0.152, our net zero standard used to be 0.15. So 0.152 is, is an incredibly low number for an existing building of this size. And really it comes down to, you know, a diligent contracting team who did a great job and a good building envelope commissioning agent who knew where to look and what issues to try and resolve. And that's great because, you know, we had been holding a number pretty close to that in our energy model. So to get that confirmation was huge.
0: Testing the envelope was key in verifying their method of energy upgrades to the building. The aspects of their approach were wide ranging. A lot
1: of times, typically with these older schools, you know, there's not a good opportunity to insulate the way we would like to. We oftentimes will use open cell foam on the inside of the CMU, build a new partition, basically build a shell inside the shell. And that seems to work pretty well. Although spray foam is not our favorite product, it's one of the only products that really works in this way for these types of buildings. So we we will deploy, you know, three inches or so of, of open cell foam around the entire building perimeter. We'll use other methods where we have new construction, you know, with exterior insulation continuous. But besides the fact that there's a 750,000 watt solar array on the roof, literally acres of solar panels, probably the biggest thing that we did design wise in the school for energy efficiency is the mechanical engineer did a really fantastic job with an integrated ventilation and heating system. So the building is, has a geothermal heating and cooling system. There are natural gas boilers for peak loads, backup. One of the things that we used, and this is why we had to have a separate bid package for this, was we used a fairly new technology or new to the United States, energy recovery ventilators from a company called Petra. They're manufacturing these units in Jordan. And these are energy recovery ventilation units. They have no enthalpy wheel. So there's no desiccant wheel. There's no plumbing inside them. There's no reheat coil. It's a dual core unit, and it's just fans. And they're about 90% efficient, whereas the old ERV technology is, you know, 65 67% efficient. And in Vermont, by far, the vast majority of our heating energy and cooling energy goes into heating and cooling the air it's inside the buildings. And in schools, in particular in the COVID era, we're trying to push as much fresh air into the building and exhaust as much stale air out of the building as possible. This increase of efficiency in the energy recovery ventilation from mid-60s to near 90% recovery meant we could downsize the pumps, we could downsize the plumbing, we could downsize the heat pumps that were in the classrooms. Basically, everything else could be downsized because so much more energy was being retained inside the building by these innovative energy recovery ventilation units. And the maintenance team was thrilled because, you know, we have to have ERVs in Vermont by code, but now they don't have to have plumbing on the roof in an outdoor unit. And the controls are much simpler too because there's no reheat or anything. It's literally just fans. So those units, although they are more expensive than a traditional unit, by far, I think they were even a savings on first cost install because just moving all of the heat pumps from you know, two ton to three ton in each classroom was a huge cost. So that was a big one. That combined with the solar array, combined with the geothermal system, and also we had a really excellent lighting design from a wonderful gentleman who's a now retired Jim Stockman in Maine. And his lighting design was, I think, got down to 0.47 watts per square foot for artificial lighting. And part of that is that we had a lot of daylight contribution because we had such importance placed on natural lighting by the owner. So we had a good daylight design with courtyards to break up these big floor plates and light monitors for spaces that were buried deep in the building, skylights and solar tubes. But getting the watts per square foot down so low, getting the total energy use needed for space heating and cooling down so low through both the geothermal plus just very efficient equipment selections meant that I think when we loaded this up to the AIA 2030 challenge, we were had like a 87% reduction over baseline for energy use our electrical engineer predicts that the building could produce up to 97% of its electrical needs with the solar array that's on the roof it happens to be the maximum allowable size net metered array in Vermont so net metering not to be pedantic but net metering for those who may not know is when the your meter runs backwards and you get a credit from your energy company so that hopefully you don't pay anything net metering is only allowed up to a certain size beyond that you have to have more complicated systems with battery backups and everything else so this is a very simple system it was installed for no money down by a company called sun common and the owner essentially leases the array and it contributes to their energy savings
0: The Winooski Schools Complex for the Winooski School District was completed in December of 2022. Over that time, Cam and the Truex Cullens team learned a lot, but the most important lessons were also the most fundamental. Two things, right? Number one is slow down.
1: The best ideas, the most successful projects, they come From the clients who have vision and this is tough for me you have to slow down you have to be quiet you have to leave space for the owners for the clients to really articulate their vision and then that's your opportunity to be clever and to solve those problems in innovative and interesting ways and it's only for that dedication to the original guiding principles that the project was successful in the first place, you know, and in that vein, the second thing is, is write it down, write it down, everything, write down what your, what your vision is, write down what your challenges are, write down what your tasks are, write down what people agree to, write down what they don't agree to. You know, one of the things, particularly with this work, when I interviewed for this project. I had a one-year-old and, you know, this project just ended and he's in first grade. And these types of projects that are very long and very community-oriented, they oftentimes outlast administrators or principals or teachers or, or school board members. And you have to have a digestible and cogent record of what people wanted and what they agreed to. I did not do enough of that. But thankfully, the things that we did write down were of such value and importance that they, they carried the day. You know, you can get through the rest, but boy, I can't say enough of really particularly trying to articulate and record the team's goals. You'll come back to it over and over again.
0: Before we close out this episode, I always try to gain some additional insight from our guests about the greater industry. With Cam currently serving on the National Board of Directors of CSI as the board chair, I wanted to know what drove his commitment to the Construction Specifications Institute. CSI is an organization
1: that just has my heart. And it really goes back to kind of two things, two big formative things for me. Number one, I I mentioned earlier, I did my thesis on music and architecture. And I've always had this affinity for multidisciplinary thinking. I've said for a long time that innovation is what happens when people have, with different disciplines have to work together. Like, you know, hands-free soap dispensers is a combination of people who know about germs and people who know about dispensing soap, <laughs> right? Right. So I've always been, been just enthralled by the idea that we can learn from other disciplines and other people maybe even more than from our own expertise. And the other was that when I was in college, I left school. I was a very poor student. I left school, got a job working with a a road construction company, and I was a fence laborer. I was literally digging holes and carrying buckets of concrete. And I did that for several years. I worked my way through college. I went back to school because I realized I had an opportunity. I couldn't squander it. So I worked my way through school. I actually stayed on the construction crew for a couple years after school. And ever since those days, I've realized, you know, going to school for architecture and then working with a bunch of laborers, you know, most of them are felons without a driver's license, I realized that, you know, no matter who draws the drawings, it's folks out in the field with hammers and shovels and squares and tape measures, they actually make things happen. I mean, I play a part as a designer, And it's an important role and one that I treasure and honor, but the people who build the buildings, who make the thing come alive, they have such power and they deserve our respect and admiration for the work that they do. And the one thing about CSI that I keep coming back to is that no matter who you are in the organization, first of all, it's open to everyone in the AECL industry, no matter what you do, lawyers, engineers, architects, specifiers, contractors, product reps, manufacturers, et cetera. So it's kind of like a, I like to think of it like King Arthur's Knights of the Round Table, but for construction, right? You know, where we all sit in an egalitarian setting and have equal authority and respect. But principally, it offers me that space where people are respected for the things that they do. And we value the expertise that other disciplines bring to our work. Because as an architect, I can never know all the things that I'm supposed to know or that people think I should know. I have to have a cadre of trusted experts, trusted advisors who know so much more about the things that they deal with on a daily basis than I do. So if I have a question about windows, I got a window guy. If I have a question about roofing, I got several roofing guys. If I got a question about masonry, I've got you know a half dozen experts that I can ask questions of and they help me be better at my job. Being part of that environment has been so valuable for me. And you know this is partly my way of giving back. I've always been attracted to bigger problems. You know, that's why I like these bigger, complicated multi-year projects. And I like to think about solutions that work for whole communities and societies. And so for me, it was a natural progression from chapter president to working on the region board to going and joining the national board and then throwing my hat in the ring to be board chair because it's, it's the professional honor of a lifetime to lead an organization like this that has such a a compelling mission and uh, such incredibly good people in it. So
0: that's in a nutshell, that's why. If you enjoyed this conversation like I did and happen to be hearing this early enough, Cam will also be speaking on DEI in schools at this year's AIA convention, A23, on Saturday, June 10th. Look for his presentation, DEI and School Design transformation of a Vermont school district and stop by to tell him that I sent you. I hope this episode sparks a new idea, helps you solve a problem that you've been working through or inspires the mark that you hope to leave on this world on your path to world domination.
1: The biggest difference that I want to make is in people's lives and I'm, when I say that, what I mean is, you know, I want the students who occupy the schools that we design to thrive. I want the coworkers that I work with every day to feel empowered and to do their work. You know, there's nothing I like more than delegating design work to folks because everybody wants to do design. And when I get to, when I get to delegate a piece of design work to someone, because personally, I'm a better critic. Anyway, so I like to take that role on. And ultimately, if I could leave one mark, it would be that we have more respect for the folks who physically support the work that we do as architects and designers. You know, we're facing such an incredible challenge in this country with skilled trades, and I have a unique opportunity. As chair of CSI, as an architect that specializes in architect in K through 12 education in the United States, such an incredible opportunity to really lean into the notion that all these people who contribute are valuable. The trades are so necessary and they're great careers. And we need to emphasize that. And I think it comes first from a place of respect for others and the work they do because that's where the stigma comes from. And as someone who spent a significant portion of my adult life getting out of work, being very dirty, you know, fluorescent yellow t-shirt covered in grease, hands dirty, smelling bad, sweat so bad my wallet is soaked in my pants. You get out of work and you go to the store and you buy a six-pack of Bud and people just kind of look you up and down and you can feel the judgment. And Going from that to getting out of work in my button down and slacks and dress shoes and buying a bottle of wine, the f- feelings of judgment that you get, and maybe this is my neuroses, but the feelings of judgment that I perceived were so fundamentally different. And I believe that that stigma and that judgment is what keeps people away from those very necessary jobs that we do. And, you know, it's like, We need to do more to encourage the young people in this country to do the work that we need to
0: be done. And we we have to respect their choices to do that. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around RCAT.com. For over 30 years, RCAT has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try RCAT and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.